Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. And welcome to the full episode of Counterparty Risk Management. This is once again an episode just with Hussam and I. And be prepared because we have some amazing guests and featurings coming in the next episode. To be sure not to miss any, make sure to follow us or subscribe to the podcast depending on the platform you are listening us on. In the episode of today, expect to learn what actually is counterparty risk and why does it need to be managed. The importance of due diligence and pre-trade assessments for such a risk, why it needs to be constantly monitored and updated, the role of corporate treasury departments in counterparty risk management, and much more. We noticed that you are more and more to follow us and we are very grateful for it. The podcast now has more than 700 subscribers and we are approaching 20,000 downloads. Therefore, and before to start this episode, we wanted to thank you and we hope you will keep learning and enjoying listening to us. With all that being said, let's get on with the show. So, Gil, in the last episode, we were talking about supply chain financing, right? Yes. Um, so, it was around third parties stepping in and buying invoices, essentially, mm-hmm. so that um, buyers and sellers can get paid earlier or later, right? Yeah. And in that time, you talked about credit ratings. And um, yes. we, we touched on it very briefly, but let's go into a bit more detail. So, what is that whole sphere of credit ratings and how does it relate to counterparty risk management? Absolutely. And uh, this is the right category indeed. If we want to understand a bit more about credit rating, you named it. Counterparty risk management is the thing to tackle. So let's start again with simply defining what counterparty risk is. And it can be seen as a simple question, actually. What happens? in case the counterparty I am contracting with doesn't fulfill its obligations like stated in the contracts. Okay. Can you give me an example here? What about my cafe? Yeah, I think it's been a while that we didn't uh, talk about it. So let's do that. Let's say Hussam's Cafe became a multinational by now, right? Since we are talking about it, it's almost a year actually. And exponential growth, amazing success. So you now have big companies as clients as well, serving just basic individuals like me um, was a bit boring for you. So you now contract with big companies that order like hundreds of coffees and like grains for the machines, but also ad hoc events and well, you just serve them. So they pass orders for several thousand euros each time, but do not pay you instantly as an individual will do in a cafe, let's say. So more like after 60 days. If one day one of those companies cannot pay you, uh, it doesn't have enough cash or it has too much debt, it needs to repay and you're not the priority on the list to be repaid or it's going bankrupt, as simple as that, you will likely never see the color of your cash, as we say in French. And therefore, you make a direct loss because you produced and delivered the coffee but didn't pay for it. Doesn't sound like very good business for me. No. Indeed. Um, and it basically means the risk of a financial loss arising from a counterparty to a financial contract that does not fulfill its obligations 
under the term of the contract. That was a bit for the technical definition. And it sounds like there's some legal implications there, surely, right? Yeah, it's part of it for sure. Okay. So what would be the sources of that risk exactly? So um, you just mentioned that could be associated with credit risk. Yeah. Um, what other risks can you look out for and, and protect against? Yeah, so credit risk, that's indeed what we just described. And we also do a little dive in in the supply chain finance episode. So if you'd like to refer to it and get to know more, that's the right place to go. But there are also other sources of counterparty risk, of course. So we could name, for instance, the market risk, which means a change in market conditions. For instance, interest rates, a fixed rate, or even the price of the underlying commodity, for instance making all of a sudden the price of the product much higher and potentially not affordable anymore for the entity that is meant to pay it. Another one, less relatable for the Hussam's Cafe example, um, but that is price volatility. Certain financial products and instruments are linked to underlying assets. And if the underlying asset goes too way up or down, depending on the kind of financial instrument we are talking about, but let's not get into too much detail here, so does the financial product, and therefore, the person that is meant to pay can have an increased risk of defaults. Yes, that makes sense. So either the market is anyway volatile, right? Like yes. interest rates are like they are right now in, in early 2023, all over the place. Um, your FX rates are moving all around the places, especially if you're going across different currency zones, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And then just generally prices are going up and down. Like in general, that could be commodities as well as, as, uh, Absolutely. as instruments, right? So for yeah. Hussam's Cafe, it could be the price of coffee beans and that are going up and down, oil prices, making mm-hmm. transport more or less expensive, et cetera, right? So what else? So you've got credit risk or sorry, yeah, credit risk, market yep, risk, price volatility, what else? The last one I would like to touch upon is operational risk. And this one simply refers and translates into the risk of errors. So it can be human, of course, uh, or failures in processing. You know, machines are much more reliable than humans, but yet sometimes they fail or they do not process correctly and so on. So it doesn't obviously mean default on payment, even though it can, but potentially can lead to a late payment, for instance, or not in full. And then you have to wait another week or another month to get paid in, paid in full and so on. So counterparty risk also means that like, if there is an operational risk within your payment chain, this can translate into not getting paid on time, but you did your forecasting accordingly and your payables accordingly. And then there is this whole machine that is affected by it. Okay. I think I'm clear. But uh, we're using a lot of jargon. I think we're, Indeed. we're quite deep into corporate treasure at this stage, but I still, I mean, our, our audience is all about corporate treasure one-on-one, right? So yes. take it a few steps back for us, Kim. Like, yes, why is court counterparty risk important overall? And it's a, it's a it's a big phrase, counterparty risk. Sounds like something very formal and very official, right? Counterparty mm-hmm. risk management. But what, like, break it down more simply and explain why it's important for me. Yes, absolutely. So in order to keep your business going, you need to make money, right? This yeah, of course. is rather straightforward. Yeah. And this can become tri- quite tricky uh, if your customers want or cannot pay you anymore, right? And if a large enough number of them don't, 
then you start actually losing money and you will eventually become the one that cannot pay its suppliers because you do not get money from the people that are meant to pay you. Mm -hmm. So obviously you want to avoid that. Um, and here it happens sometimes, Hussam, the Hussam's Cafe example is not the, the best in that case because your customers pay you directly, right? You go to a mm -hmm. cafe, you pay for your coffee on spot. But there are a lot of industries where getting your money will happen in 30, 60, 90 days. Or there are a lot of financial instruments that need to be repaid after a certain time. We talked about futures, options, forwards when we talked about financial risk management, right? Mm. There are a lot of financial instruments and a lot of industries where payments are due mm. by in the future. And counterparty risk management allows financial institutions and the companies to minimize or mitigate the risk of loss due to the failure of the counterparties. That's how I would explain the importance and criticalness of counterparty uh, risk management. Does it make sense? I think so. so well, let, let's let's pull in another example, Caleb. So I think indeed the the cafe example doesn't work so well here because cafe is B to C, right? Yes. It's business to consumer to customers. Um, whereas I think a lot of these concepts sometimes become B2B, right? They're business to business. Mm -hmm. Because indeed, uh, most consumer industries would involve payment almost there and then, right? Yes. So if you're a business offering a service to another business, um, say you're a marketing agency, for example. Yep. So say that yeah, you're a company that makes podcasts for other companies. Mm -hmm. Right? Becoming interesting. So in that scenario, you would, yours providing a service to, let's say you make a podcast for a bank and you're saying, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to make a podcast for you. Um, but the bank goes, okay, but I'm only going to pay you. Uh, I'm based in the US, you're based in Europe and mm -hmm. I'm going to pay you, you know, after you give me the podcast. After yep. you've published four episodes, I'll pay you four episodes, mm -hmm. right? In that scenario, if it's a big bank, I can probably trust that it's going to get paid. But if it's a small company, like a, you know, Sally's teddy bears, maybe they can't pay me sometimes and whatnot. I need to manage that risk, I guess. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So how does a company do that? How do you, like, I think I understand what counterparty risk is. It's basically just being mindful of the risk of not getting paid due to external events or the company itself going bankrupt that's meant to pay you. How do you actually manage that? What can I do about that as a, as a podcast company? So that is super interesting as an example, Usam. And I would like to dig a little bit into that. You mentioned it. The big bank is going to pay you after you have published and released four episodes, right? Mm. This happens in quite a lot of time. I mean, or at least a month. So you put in all the efforts, you record the podcast, like edit the audio, create the show notes, create the social media posts. Pay all my contractors early. Exactly. Um, pay for all my subscriptions to my expensive software. Exactly. That's quite a heavy work and quite an investment. But you're contracting with the bank, the likelihood that it defaults on the payment is very, very low. So it's a juicy contract, you'll take it. If you, I don't remember the name exactly of uh, Teddy Bear. Ali Teddy Bears. Ali Teddy Bears. Teddy bears. Yeah. Here, it's, I mean, it's likely that they will pay you 
on time, even if it's after a month of publishing podcasts and so on, but you have absolutely no certainty about that. So you will adjust your strategy depending on the counterparty you are dealing with, obviously. The bank will pay you, that's certain, so you will be more flexible on the payment terms. The small company, a little bit less, and that's already moving forward. That's how you can mitigate that risk or like analyze. Now, an effective way to manage counterparty risk starts with assessing the credit worthiness of counterparties and monitoring their financial performance. In the end, it all comes down to this. The bank has a good financial performance, very likely, and will comply with its financial obligations. So it has a good credit rating, sort of. Another impact and important aspect uh, is to then take in steps to mitigate potential losses in the event of counterparties' failure. How can you take those steps? What are the steps? I'm going to start by the obvious, um, but a good way to mitigate counterparty risk is to, well, pay attention to whom you are dealing with and where does your money come from. An excellent way to do so is by doing what we call a pre-trade assessment. Okay. What's, what's a pre-trade assessment then? You may have heard about due diligence. Is it something that's reasonable yeah. or awesome? Indeed. So lawyer chat, right? It's a... Exactly. Of a wire term from our favorite TV show, Suits, Guillaume. That's right. Exactly. Like Harvey and Mike do a lot of due diligence. Spot yeah. on. Harvey likes so, more Mike. Yeah, exactly. So, what is due diligence? It's basically a comprehensive and systematic investigation of potential investment or product to confirm all facts. This is very lawyery uh, jargon as well, I'm figuring out. So, Reviewing all the financial records and contracts, uh, all the financial statements of the counterparty you're dealing with, uh, the credit rating, for instance, if it has one, all this is due diligence. And the purpose is to assess the risks and opportunities, of course, associated with a proposed transaction or a proposed transaction with a certain counterparty and verify that all material information have been disclosed. If not, you are not sure what you are stepping into. So it's basically just making sure you've done your own work, right? It's just... 100%. Going it was a fancy all... way to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Doing all your research, delving into all the things that could be important when mm -hmm. dealing with this other company that you're about to deal with, right? So looking into yes. their, have they paid other people on time in the past? Um, do they have, do they pay their credit cards off correctly? Um, are they trustworthy? But also legally, are they set up correctly? Is there anything shady going on? These kind of things, right? It's just making sure you do your checks and get them that done properly. Spot on, indeed. Okay. Yeah. Well, give me, talk me through an example about the kind of things you would check before you go into some sort of transaction. 100%. So let's take M&A, mergers and acquisitions, for instance. Let's say that Hussam's Cafe uh, wants to buy a coffee chain in South America to expand its business here, which is amazing because it's literally the land of coffee, right? Beforehand, it is not absurd to state that you will make sure the financial and operational status of the company you are buying are as they are sold and told about, right? Uh, you will probably be chatting with the CEO or like the head of merger and acquisition of this big coffee chain in South America. And they say, yeah, our company is fantastic. We have amazing results and so on. But you want to actually have a look at it on paper. What does it say? And you want to make sure there is nothing hidden, like a big debt to be repaid that will lower the price of the company, for instance, or some fine to be paid and so on. What you want to do is not to overpay the company you are acquiring. 
it will be the same if you decide to make an investment uh, before giving your money to a hedge fund, for instance, or to a bank. So it invests your money for you. You want to make sure that this hedge fund is robust enough and will be able to give you your money back in the case you decide to exit with hopefully some interest, of course. Okay. So it's basically not taking the CEO, the person that's selling their company to me on their word, but actually getting everything checked. Like if they say, oh, we have this many branches, checking that we have, they have this many branches. If they say, yeah. oh, we have this much in uh, revenue, looking through their accounts and making sure they actually have that much in revenue, exactly. et cetera, et cetera. Right. So where does, I feel like this ties quite closely to compliance overall, Indeed. right? As a, as a concept. So. Um, I know, especially usually you have banks helping you finance these deals. Banks are all about compliance. Um, does that, how does that tie into all of this? 100%. Um, again, you're spot on, Mayo Sam. Compliance and regulation constitutes like an investigation performed to ensure that a company or individual is in compliance with relevant laws and regulation, of course. So you may have heard of as well as anti-money laundering, sorry, AML, or know your customer KYC regulations. That's something that is really known and talked about in the financial world, in the banking world, and in the fintech world, actually. So for banks, compliance, and especially KYC, has become a critical part of the dealing process. Again, there's that kind of like due diligence on the compliance and legal side? Is that what it is? Exactly. And it's part, again, of the pre-trade ass assessment. So you don't only want to check the financial aspects of a company, right? You also want to make sure they are always compliant with the law. Uh, they are not doing anything shady because first, there is a risk of reputation for you, uh, but that's something else. But there is also, okay, if tomorrow they need to close the company because they just made a huge illegal thing and they owe you money, well, you're unlikely to get your money back. So it's all part of this, the due diligence, KYC, and compliance aspects. We also find uh, what we quickly touched upon earlier in the supply chain finance series, the credit risk assessment um, of it. So this is a process used to evaluate the likelihood of a borrower defaulting on a loan or meeting their contractual obligations. So this is a bit beyond the compliance aspect. It's then, okay, what is their credit risk? And the assessment is typically performed by lenders, financial institutions, and rating agencies. Okay, so Guillaume, take me into the, the technical details. How does one run a proper credit risk assessment then? By all means. So it all starts with the collection of data. Obviously, the collecting data on the borrower, including the financial information, credit history, and other relevant information on the business. For instance, is it used to repay on time? Are the suppliers currently getting their money on time according to the payment terms? Um, do they not do anything shady? Are they compliant with the law and so on? You then obviously need to run an analysis on financial information, right? You analyze the borrower's financial statements, income statement, balance sheets, uh, and their ability to repay loans in full and on time. Then you can have a look at their credit history, uh, which is a review of the borrower's credit history, including past loans and payment behavior. And potentially, there are the evaluation of other factors, such as the borrower's industry. Uh, some are more risky than others. You named it earlier, the number of branches uh, that the counterparty is telling they have. The economic environment as well. Uh, maybe some industries are much more subject to be impacted by economic environment where others are not. Uh, in the case of the pandemic, for instance, the tech and digital industry has been way less affected or actually 
in a positive manner than others. Um, and the uh, collateral available to secure the loan, for instance, if you are thinking of granting a loan. Last but not least, you determine the credit score. So this is either done by the rating agency or you do it yourself. And it's based on the information gathered. The lender or credit agency assigns a credit score to the borrower, which reflects their credit worthiness. That was a, a big chunk. Does it make all sense? So you collect all the data about mm -hmm. how they've borrowed in the past, how well they've sold it off, uh, sorry, paid it back, etc. Right? Yeah. You just sort of go through all their statements to make sure that they're profitable and they have they actually make money so they would be able to pay you back. Yes. And then you just kind of look at, you know, other factors such as are they in a risky country? Is the industry tanking in general, et cetera? So basically it's a combination of mm -hmm. their overall history, their history of borrowing and the environment in which they are at the moment and how the future looks for that environment, right? So those are the kind of things exactly. that you would look to to see if they're a good credit risk or not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what is that what the agency does then, the rating agencies that we mentioned in the past? What's their, are they the ones that run this calculation and assessment or? Exactly. So getting a credit rating from one of those uh, rating agencies, so we can think about Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and so on, those are the biggest you need to pay it as a company to say, okay, we would like a credit rating because we intend on making some financial transactions or be acting on the on the market and so on. Or banks do that themselves. But in the case of rating agencies, their role uh, is to, well, run the credit risk assessment process and to provide independent and objective credit ratings for various debt and securities or companies. These ratings serve as benchmark for the credit risk of an insurer, uh, of an insurancery, and can help investors make informed investment decisions, or as a company to say, ah, okay, this company is rated triple A, whatever. Um, it's a trustworthy company. I can deal with it. So the credit ratings assigned by rating agencies can also affect a borrower's ability to access financing, as lenders may require a minimum credit rating for a loan to be approved, and so on. And to quickly touch upon this, there are some grids available online, but basically uh, you want a counterparty containing a lot of A's in the credit score. You might have heard uh, the name of triple A uh, when talking about certain financial products or institutions. The more A's, the better, basically. I mean, I've only heard of this in this situation of the financial crisis in 2008. <laughs> Which makes sense, right? <laughs> but, but it will be the same. Uh, you want to deal with a company that is rated as many A as possible, as you would for the financial products you contract. It's just a score as a way of rating everything we already talked about and summarized around the um, counterparty risk, right? So you do that assessment yeah. and then you kind of just come up with like a score, an arbitrary score to define whether, where people rank on the assessment you've done, basically. Yeah, exactly. So again, yeah, once you've defined uh, the credit rating of a company and you have all this information that we've already discussed, right? You've done all your due diligence, you've looked at environmental factors, you've done your counterparty risk assessment. How do you ongoing monitor the risk and manage the risk exactly? Because I guess, yeah, you, you, everything is kind of just a prediction at this point and then you go into the deal 
But as yeah. time goes on, you need to make sure none of those variables that you measured have changed, right? Maybe, um, for example, the environmental factors one could change all of a sudden. How do you manage it ongoing exactly? Yeah, that's a, a very good point to touch upon. So um, it's indeed rather common to run a pre-trade assessment, right? When you enter in a new relationship with a counterparty, because that's the thing to do. But counterparty risk management uh, indeed also means looking at your current ones. And a company being healthy uh, from a financial standpoint, five years ago, doesn't mean it still is the case. So when you do your pre-assessment, it's all good. And then one or two or five or 10 years afterwards, it's not the case at all anymore. Therefore, you want to regularly update the data you have received in the first place when you did your due diligence. And you want to constantly analyze them, monitor them, and assess the credit risk and so forth. So this will indeed help your company by providing early warnings of potential defaults and allowing for proactive risk management measures to be taken. What are the KPIs, Guillaume, that you measure as you go along? As a consultant, I'm sure you love those. Exactly. When you cooperate like this, that's awesome. So it really depends on uh, what you are looking at. Let's start with purely financial products, right? Because this is really highly linked to counterparty risk management, but we will, of course, make the link with uh, the companies and the corporates. So in the case of financial product, you can increase the collateral requirements, for instance. What, what do you mean by collateral requirements? It's such a fancy term, right? So... Uh. When Treasures love your fancy terms. Yeah. <laughs> Simplify it. Come on. We have to make it complicated, right? I was always wondering. Otherwise, I don't get the low people. <laughs> exactly. So you can say, you can get a big fee to uh, explain what it is. So let's look at what happens when you take a load, Sam. And uh, let's say to finance your car. The institution providing you with a loan can consider that you will repay your debts and is just relying on your upcoming salaries. You look at your uh, basic and they're like, oh, this guy is uh, quite well off. He will repay the car for sure. That's fine. Or they can be a bit skeptical and say, look, we're happy to lend you the money, but we will take the car as collateral. Meaning, if you don't repay, we take your car and we sell it in order to pay back the loan or the remaining amount to be paid. And this is typically the case for mortgages, for instance, with the house as collateral. For financial products alone, for instance, you can ask the company for its stock as collateral or other assets they may have. So you write into the loan that um, you're asking for cash right now as a loan, which is fine, but um, you have this asset which is worth something. Um, now you don't want to sell that asset. Yeah. So in case you cannot pay back your loan, you need to give me that asset. I'll sell it and make my money back that way. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And this okay. is what we call leverage, right? You have assets that you don't want to sell, but you want the money linked to it so you can use it as collateral to leverage debt and more money to invest in other projects. But that's important. So you can take collateral. What other measures can you take to manage your counterparty risk? So you can obviously renegotiate the terms of the contract. So let's uh, stay in the case of a loan for now. Uh, you can review the interest rates, right? You can, as a lender, set them higher because the risk of the borrower has increased uh, and therefore you deserve more return. Or you can actually reduce them so it's easier for the borrower to repay and the lender is more likely to get all its money back. 
You can also have a look at the repayment periods. It can be shortened, right? Or extended, depending on the strategy you want to adopt. Shortened to make sure, okay, I want to get my money back as soon as possible because this gets risky. Or, okay, this counterparty starts to be unlikely to repay me. How about I give him a little bit of, I cut him a little bit of slack, let's say, and I extend the repayment period so it's easier for him or her. Uh, and of course, you can have a look at the amount, but that's usually the last metric you want to touch upon because what you want is to recover all your amount. We did our payment series, again, where we talked about yeah. different forms of payment and whatnot. What, how does that fit into this? What about the payments? Yeah, absolutely. So for those, you have multiple things you can play on. First one is you can ask your clients to pay you faster, right? Potentially upon delivery and not after 30, 60 or 90 days anymore. That quite reduces the counterparty risk because you do not have kind of exposure. You just say, okay, you pay me when I deliver. You can also increase your prices to reflect the risk, but that's that's quite rare. Uh, or you can ask a third party to guarantee the payments. This is the principle of the letter of credit that we broke down in the previous series on supply chain finance. And there, there is a financial institution or a bank saying, okay, if that counterparty is not paying on time the total amount, I will step in and pay for it. You could either make it easier for the person to pay you back. That's basically what all these are, right? Yeah. It's finding ways to make it easier for the person to be able to pay you back or having a backup in case they can't pay you back. That's kind of so. the, the collateral route, right? So, okay, yeah. if you can't pay me back, then I just take the this asset, like a, your stocks, or you just adjust the payment terms or you potentially even reduce the price, I guess, right? Exactly. Okay, so what else can you do to, to monitor or manage your counterparty risk? Yeah. Another one is, it's actually quite interesting, it's like just setting limits. You can decide that with a certain credit rating or score or for certain counterparties, your exposure won't exceed a certain amount. What do you mean by exposure? That's another fancy corporate word. <laughs> Indeed, damn, I've put a lot into this episode. That's interesting. Uh, well, well, we are 87 episodes off. Yeah, we start to be used to it, right? But still, corporate treasury 101. That'll be the next. Next, corporate treasury 102. Then you can start. And now I'm still, I still need the basics explained to me. So, absolutely by exposure. But that's that's a very good approach. So, let's say I'm a company, one of those big companies that you are now serving with the Hussam's Cafe, and I order let's say 10,000 euros worth of coffee delivery each month. And I pay you after 30 days, which means for every month you deliver me, I pay the month after. Between the moment you deliver me the coffee and the moment I pay you, there are 30 days, right? And for that time, I owe you 10,000 euros for that period of 30 days. This is your exposure with me. You have an exposure of 10,000 euros. In the case of a loan, a financial institution lending to Husam's Cafe, for instance, let's say 1 million euro to help you expand your business in Latin America. Um, they lend you this 1 million euro for the period of a year. And let's say you are using it all. They have an exposure with you of 1 million euro. And depending on the financial state of your company, it can be that the financial institution lending you that money would answer no in case you would ask for more, saying, hey, look, you just invested in Latin America. It's amazing. I want to do the same for South Asia, for instance, please lend me another 1 million euro. And here they would be like, look, Sam, uh, it's a pleasure doing business with you, but our limit with you because of your credit rating and the likelihood that you repay us is 1 million euro. That's the limit we have set for you. 
as a counterparty. So exposure is kind of just like how much risk is on the table at that time. Exactly. Yeah. So you can say, okay, I'm okay to take a risk with you to have a million in transit, but if you until you pay that back, I'm not going to give you any more, right? Exactly. And the riskier someone is, the lower that limit is. You say, okay, no, you're so unreliable, I can't afford more than a hundred thousand of exposure to you, meaning a hundred thousand mm-hmm. of my money in your debt. Um, yeah. Where someone else, you're like, yeah, you can owe me two million. I know you'll pay it back. It's okay. Exactly. All right. We've always been talking from the seller yep. side, meaning getting paid, right? Yes. But I guess there's also the risk from the other side. You pay someone to give you a good or service and it doesn't come, right? Is that, that surely should be, that's a counterparty risk as well, right? That's the risk of another party. A hundred percent. That's on point. So indeed, you could also set limits, right? Because what does it mean, a counterparty risk with your supplier? You basically order for 1 million euros worth of raw materials. Um, but what happens if that supplier doesn't deliver or not on time or partially? Uh, then you cannot run your business as you are intending to. So here you can also set limits, especially when your suppliers ask you to pay upfront, for instance. It's not often the case, uh, but can happen in particular at the beginning of a relationship or in certain industries. And in order to mitigate it, you could also decide not to order for more than a certain amount and get the rest of your raw materials or whatever from another supplier. But that's indeed part of the counterparty risk. So it's like you have multiple suppliers in case one fails. Exactly. Right? So you can always get from another one. So you like diversifying suppliers. Exactly. And that's the other wo- the points I wanted to touch upon, Sam. Um, like in portfolio management, uh, when you invest your money on the markets, a common advice you receive and that you see is do not put all your eggs in the same basket. Is that a, is that a correct expression in English, right? Don't put, yes, indeed. Yeah. Awesome. And this advice is uh, very much applicable in the counterparty risk management sphere. The more clients you have, obviously the less impactful one failing to pay you is unless it is one of your biggest, of course. And same for the suppliers. If you have 10 suppliers that can more or less provide the same service or the same product at more or less the same price, well, you can very much mitigate your risk by uh, ordering a little bit from all of them. Now, uh, in counterparty management, there is also the aspect that you want to be an important client for your suppliers. So if you just split in 10 your business with 10 suppliers, you will actually not be a big client for any of them. So will you have favorable payment terms or prices? It's less likely. So it's all about managing properly your risk with your, well, financial contracts and contractual terms. Okay. There. What else can you do to mitigate your risks in the scenario as a, yeah. as a buyer? So... We've talked about netting, right? Uh, this constitutes a full-blown episode on this show. And if you want to check it out, it is episode 63 to 66 with another amazing guest. But we talked mostly uh, in those episodes about intercompany invoices netting. But in the case of uh, financial transactions, and let's say uh, if two computer parties owe money to each other, you can net the aggregated financial contracts into a single position, meaning... Let's say, Hussam, you are a financial institution A and I am financial institution B. Because of all the dealing we do with one another, I end up owing you 100 million euros, for instance, and you owe me 150 million euros. 
instead of creating both a big gap in our cash flows, you propose me to simply send me 50 million euros and we have netted the position of both our account payables. You have to have a relationship with a supplier that is both ways, right? Indeed. And it's a bit trickier to put in place, but it can happen um, that your suppliers are also your customers. Well, first of all, depending on your business units, for instance, if you are a big multinational company, maybe a business unit has a supplier uh, for certain raw materials or certain services even, but another business unit of your own company is selling to these suppliers and this is a whole virtual circle. Likewise, uh, within the same company, it can be that you vertically integrate. So you start as Husam's Cafe, you have your cafe in Brussels, but soon you own the whole supply chain, right? And you're like getting uh, the coffee beans from the company you bought that is producing coffee beans. Uh, you have the, let's say, logistic company that transports the coffee. And then the suppliers of your company can also be your customers within your own company. And then you can easily net some invoices. But this is very particular, I admit. That's nonetheless a technique that can be used. Quite niche. Um, you haven't mentioned hedging at any point here. I thought that's what hedging was, Guillaume. It was all about um, having some sort of risk uh, management to an external. We talked about hedging in terms of FX and interest rates, for example, but could you not hedge somehow in this scenario as well? Very much indeed. So we talked about hedging uh, when we mentioned um, and we talked about financial risk management and FX and interest rate risk management. Um, but it works in the case of counterparty risk management as well. It is quite specific though and mostly applicable for financial institutions, a bit less for corporates. Uh, but what can be put in place, for instance, is the use of credit default swaps, futures and options. We have already tackled what futures and options are in our episodes 9 and 10. Uh, so there is quite an extensive definition of it out there. And for credit default swaps, um, it's basically providing protection against the risk of default by a borrower, such as a company or a sovereign entity. So against a certain amount of money, you get protected in case a company defaults. Okay. Basically, financial instruments have been made by third parties like banks to basically create some sort of hedge that will very much be mostly in the case of financial transaction between financial institutions but let's say for instance i mean it's very unlikely to happen but why not you are a big i don't know uh, building producers and like you build massive building industrial sites and so on and you contract with a country in latin america for instance like the government of this latin american country is paying you to build schools, hospitals, whatever. It's quite a massive and juicy contract, so you want to do it. But also, maybe the economical situation of this country is not very, very um, safe, and it's quite risky for your company. And you're like, okay, I'm going to contract a credit default swap for the amount of, the, of my business. And if that country or government defaults, I get my money back. This is quite of, a, of an example, but this is how the mechanism would work indeed. Very clear. And, and that thing would obviously cost you something, right? So if it did go through well, you'd still pay the fee for having it in the first place. Exactly. I don't know if, uh, have you seen the, the movie, The Big Short, Usam? Yes, exactly. I was going to say exactly that. That's what the, um, that's how Bill Barry hedged against the mortgage, subprime mortgage market crashing. Exactly. 
they bet against the real estate markets as a whole. And they say, look, this will, uh, this will collapse. It's a bubble. And this is what happens. And they contract, uh, they put in place credit default swaps. Indeed. Mm -hmm. okay. So much easier when Margot Robbie explains it to you than... than yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have, had, I have the, the sexy voice at least, no? Uh, the, the French accent, definitely. Ah, well, it plays a bit. So we discussed a lot on this podcast, right? Um, but let's go back to our four pillars of corporate treasury, which you can find, by the way, in our ebook, downloadable in the link in the description. So cash and liquidity management, financial risk management, corporate finance with funding and investment, and banking relationship. Yeah, indeed, on our ebook at corporatetreasury11.com, but also it's the first few episodes, right? Episode two, three, four, and five. Yes. Of the Corporate Treasury 101. Indeed. And so during those, we mentioned that banks are a third party, corporate treasury departments has a lot of business to do with. They are the ones that you open a bank account with, meaning they often hold your cash at a certain point in time, at least. They also are often the access door to the financial markets, allowing you to borrow or invest money. And they can also provide you with the financial instruments to manage your financial risks, such as derivatives like swaps, options, forwards, and so on. Okay, so when we've talked about counterparty in the past, sometimes they fail and you lose all your money, right? That's counterparty risk, the risk yes. of working with third parties outside of you. But banks don't usually fail, right? They're pretty big. So why is that a risk in corporate treasury? Indeed. So banks are too big to fail, right? That's a famous saying in, in the financial world. It's not completely true, though. Uh, I'm sure some former clients of the Lehman Brothers, for instance, will tend to disagree. But it's true that in general, big banks are unlikely to fail, especially since the new regulations and financial ratios they need to comply with since the crisis of 2008. But the logic is here. You might not want to put all your eggs in the same basket. If you are in need of a big funding, for instance, a revolving credit facility of $1 billion, let's say, on top of banks not agreeing, you might not want to have only one bank financing all this because you would become extremely dependent on how this bank is doing in particular. Okay, so you'd rather have multiple banks participating, get a few hundred million from one place, a few hundred million from another, mm -hmm. which would like diversify your risk in a way, right? Yes. And so you'd be a bit more flexible um, in terms of the bank's terms changing as well, I guess, or their interest rates or policies changing. Spot on. And this will be the case then for all the counterparties, not only the banks. So the money market funds, that's something we tackled as, as well on the podcast. So you invest your in excess of cash in. The FX dealers uh, you use to hedge your foreign exchange exposure and so on. So there are quite a counterparties that corporate treasury departments have to deal with in the end. So it sounds like hedging against other banks by diversifying your bank portfolio. So that's an interesting one. Uh, here I was talking about the hedging of your financial risk, but indeed you can actually hedge against certain counterparties. Yes, that's quite precise and that's very in-depth, but that's something you can do. Absolutely. Okay, so what does the corporate treasury department, the treasury department of a corporation do exactly in this? What's, what's the actual job? Yes. So typically the corporate treasurer himself, so the highest position in corporate treasury departments, helped by his team, of course, and with the involvement of the company's leadership, will define a policy when it comes to counterparty risk management. So it's like setting up how much you'd be willing to put on one bank, for yes. example? Exactly. 
So that's and define what to do with counterparties having a certain credit rating, right? Uh, that's something we mentioned a little bit earlier in this episode. So you have uh, this, uh, rating agencies that rate certain financial institutions saying those ones is safe, uh, those ones are not safe. And the department is then responsible for respecting the policy, obviously, and force it and report on the different metrics. Um, are we compliant with the limit we've put for this counterparty? Uh, has the credit rating of this one change? Should we adapt? And so on. So this consists of identifying, measuring, monitoring, and mitigating the risk associated with those counterparties. Okay, so it's, again, risk management, essentially. Yes. So the corporate treasury department is working on the policies defined by the group treasurer yes. to say, okay, this is our risk management strategy. This is the maximum we're going to have with any bank at any one time. And this is how we're going to structure our risk overall. Spot on. That's exactly okay. it. So what would be the challenges then? Because it's just if it's just implementing a policy, that seems very straightforward, no? Absolutely. So apart from the obvious, uh, well, do not lose any of the company's money, right? Whether it is its cash with investments or its capacity to finance its activity with funding, there are a couple of challenges arising from this. So the first one is, Balance the risk and reward strategy. As we mentioned a few times, the whole challenge of treasury is to find the sweet spot between not losing any of the capital allocated to a certain task, maintain the liquidity of the company at all costs, and get the highest reward possible. So all this finding was the best reward for very low risk opportunity. And counterparty risk management is all about that. Okay, so but what's the practicalities of actually executing that? What does it mean to implement of counterparty risk management strategy. Yes, and coming to this challenge in particular, so again, it all comes down to the risk appetites defined by the leadership of the company, of which the policy will stem from, obviously. Then the key is to establish a clear risk management framework, a re regulatory monitor, and manage risks, and evaluate the potential reward associated with the risks taken. Okay, any other challenges? Yes, another important consideration is the interdependence with other risks management. So foreign exchange and interest rates risk management, for instance. If you are a company that is highly exposed to those risks, you will need to take all those and the counterparty risk management in consideration before executing your deals. Same if you are very cash rich, for instance, or very dependent on external funding. And by all this, I mean, okay, let's say... I want to limit the number of swaps and options I have with a certain counterparty in terms of total exposure, because if they fail, I will not get my money back on this transaction. But what if I need a lot of those, a lot of foreign exchange risk instruments? Then I will have to diversify my portfolio of counterparties. Some are more reliable than others. Some have better prices than others. So all this impacts also the prices. So I need to properly take into consideration all those aspects and still come up with the best risk and reward strategy. Okay, so would an example of that be like negative interest rates? Like I know they had that recently in Europe. Yeah. So what would be the challenge a cash-rich company would have with negative interest rates, for example? Yeah, that's a super good example. So this market condition made it very uninteresting, obviously, for companies to just hold their cash, right? As they will lose money if just let on the bank accounts. So the smart thing to do was to invest it, even at a very low rate, but what if your counterparty risk management strategy was to avoid money market funds, for instance, and other investment instruments provider? This is where it becomes super interesting because you need to preserve the cash and the capital of the company. So you want to invest this money. But at the same time, 
your counterparty risk management and the whole leadership said, okay, let's avoid investing this cash. So this is where one of the challenge is um, quite challenging. I, I would imagine, I always thought that companies diversified between banks because of some sort of regulation. Like it would have been some, you know, you can't have like monopolies, for mm -hmm. example, in the market. So is there not like a compliance element to all of this as well? Yes. So that would be more on the bank side, actually. We have quick section on the regulations, um, but indeed for the banks, they all have, especially since the crisis of 2008, uh, very strict financial ratios to keep and counterparty exposure, depending on the credit rating of those counterparties. For corporates, it's a, bit, it's a bit different. You are a bit more free as you will not impact, let's say, a systemic system. But still, that's very much uh, to be taken into consideration indeed. So there's an element of due diligence on the corporate side as well. Absolutely. So the last challenge, and uh, this is the perfect transition to it, and the last challenge worth mentioning is the regulatory and compliance aspects of counterparty risk management. So due diligence, you said it, pre-trade assessments are a must as well. We mentioned it in this episode. And on top of that, companies cannot always do just what they want, and banks as well, with certain investment, fundings, hedging activities, come a whole bunch of regulation. So companies and banks need to report uh, and have proper confirmations on deals, for instance. They need to respect, as said, certain financial ratios. They also need to be mindful of anti-money laundering, uh, with which counterparty I'm dealing, does it evolve, and fraud prevention as well. And all this without talking about the risk of reputation when associated with certain funds, countries, and so on. If I want to invest my cash with the highest reward, sometimes it will be to say something certain industries, such as, I don't know, oil uh, and gas companies that certain companies might not want to be linked with. So it is, again, a whole process to take into consideration. Okay. Do you know some of those regulations, Guillaume, off the top of your head? What are those regulations that come into this? Yes. Um, so this one is rather painful, so I'm going to try to be as um, summarizing as possible. But in a nutshell, so we have Basel III, for instance, which is a very famous one for the banks. It focuses on um, a set of international banking regulations, and basically it sets out capital requirements, liquidity standards, risk management guidelines, and so on. And the objective is to maintain adequate capital buffers to cover potential losses. In the US, we have the Dodd-Frank Act um, that was enacted in response of the 2008 financial crisis as well. Without entering into the details, it's um, in place to implement robust risk management policies, basically. In Europe, uh, we have the EMIR, the European Market Infrastructure Regulation. This is a set of regulations that governs over-the-counter derivative markets, and it makes you uh, comply with certain financial uh, ratios, and how to uh, properly manage your counterparty risk management, basically. We also have ISDA, the International Swaps and Derivative Association, um, that provides standard legal documentation for derivative transactions. And last but not least, we mentioned it already, the KYC, Know Your Customer, which is one that we tackled already in this episode. Could you describe derivatives again? Yes, so derivatives is all the financial instruments that are linked to an underlying asset. Meaning, um, I will receive in one month a thousand uh, million euros uh, from Euro, for instance, but I'm a US company. A derivative will be uh, forwards uh, in dollars that will be linked to this Euro transaction. So it's like a contract about a transaction that you can also use as an asset itself. Exactly. And that's it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> 